Y'all probably live in a well-regulated suburban or urban area, but can you identify environmental crimes around you? Do you really know who is affected? And how much politics is embedded within these crimes? In this podcast, I want you to decide whether outlawing business behaviors against the environment is for our safety or are there political motives behind this criminal legislation. Let's talk about it here on The Green Conversation. I'm your host, Leo Jenko. Environmental crimes fly under the radar often because the news doesn't really get much attention from these stories. They are not common enough to be at the forefront of everyone's mind. And the impact isn't always immediate. It takes a lot to handle these sorts of issues as well. But how should you define these environmental crimes? Put simply, right now, they are outlawed behaviors because they may extensively damage the environment. However, these crimes are discussed in the context of the economic structure, not necessarily because an individual decided to litter. That is, these crimes deal with economic or business behavior. And majority of the research is focused on looking at business activity. However, it is not a simple feat to understand these crimes, even with that brief description. Green criminologists, like myself, focus on how the economy shapes our relationships with nature and how those relationships can be negative or criminal towards the environment. For instance, I study how the structure and distribution of mining and production industries affect where illegal hunting occurs. But the big question that I always must answer for readers or listeners like yourself is why? Why are these behaviors criminal? Who cares? You would think that people would inherently care about the environment. However, as mentioned in other episodes, people don't immediately think about the environment when it comes to their life. And so it begs the question, why should I care about these behaviors against the environment, and why are they illegal in the first place? At one point, there seems to be some sort of understanding. Environmental law in the United States can date back all the way to 1899 with the Rivers and Harbors Act. However, Most people are familiar with the large introduction of environmental law between the 1960s and the 1980s. We were able to pass the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and so on. And many of these laws came to fruition because there were issues, because there were environmental issues that were directly impacting humans. Therefore, environmental law was a reaction to the direct harm towards human ecology. And once those issues were put into some sort of legal code, people continued their life and forgot about the environmental issues. Because, for some reason, we rely on the system to deal with things once we put something into legal code, as most people believe they are. And then we just live about our daily lives as if nothing happened. But moving on, environmental issues only become criminal when they start to damage some sort of investment or human community. So environmental crimes are not technically defined as behaviors harming the environment, but behaviors that harm the environment that directly affect humans. Scholars, though, argue that behaviors should be outlawed if they disrupt the environment in general, not solely based on the direct threat to human life. They believe 
that environmental crimes should address behaviors that ruin the overall workings of the ecosystems. Because every ecosystem, even our own, play into the health of the environment and our future. There are multiple books that explore this perspective, and you can check one of those book series through the Pelgrave Publications. These books are hosted by editors Dr. Agnes Nurse, Dr. Rob White, and Dr. Melissa Gerald. Most people do not see themselves involved with the natural environments and invest in natural resources. This ultimately prevents them from really understanding what these crimes are. Because, well, if you're not seeing the crimes, you're not going to understand the long-lasting effects on the environment as a whole and our ecology. So when we discuss why certain behaviors against the environment are illegal, there has to be some sort of common sense behind this when outlawing a business activity. People need common sense because they are not always involved with this world. And again, there are many books on this matter, like the series I mentioned before. But the problem is, these books are academically written. Common citizens will struggle to understand the format in which these books are written. To put this more in perspective, crimes against the land, water, air, and wildlife bring in multiple levels of knowledge for multiple fields of science. You have biology, environmental sciences, chemistry, sociology, economics, criminology, and political science, maybe more. The number of views needed to understand environmental crime is very large. My field of green criminology only focuses on the social relationships of economic institutions as it pertains to these crimes. That is my goal, but I'm unable to fully communicate the extent of these harmful behaviors. And this massive amount of information and multiple perspectives in an academic format is a huge limitation for the average person. On top of that, the message from academic research is too drastic compared to average discussions in public from my own experience. You can't define a crime if you have large leaps in logic. I'm just gonna put that out there. A doomsday argument is not appropriate science. As mentioned in a previous episode about the issues with the EPA, predictive science operates in hypotheticals which skews our understanding of illegal behaviors against the environment. And there is a slippery slope when more and more economic behaviors are deemed criminal just based on hypotheticals with little to no evidence of harm. It definitely doesn't help that politicians have their input in this definition of environmental crimes. And these definitions are basically just political clout, rather than show some understanding of our connection to the surrounding ecologies and how our businesses harm that. And this is what bugs me the most. While we have an uprising of environmental law, these laws come about because politicians need to address these issues for the sake of maintaining their voter base. There is a large insurgence of protests and uproar when it came to environmental issues in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. I have a hard time believing that these politicians really wanted to create these laws, even though there may be some noble and some heart behind it for a few. Politicians we know are bought by corporations, and this influence from corporations extend to how crimes against the environment are defined by lawmakers. The amount of carve-outs within these laws shines a light on how these politicians really understand the uproar from the people. People were angry about polluting the land. Politicians did make it illegal to pollute, but after you hit a threshold, you can still pollute a small amount. This is mainly because businesses understand that to produce product, there will be waste. 
pollution will happen, and politicians have to weigh those costs and benefits and determine what would be overpolluting. But due to this balance between people and business, environmental crimes are not clear-cut crimes as, say, burglary or murder. But this gets to a major problem. These criminal behaviors also need a victim in order to create a clear-cut definition. This begs a bigger question now. Who is impacted from these crimes, and how does this affect how we respond to environmentally harmful economic behaviors? Crimes are easily defined by the harm done to victims. For example, you have petty larceny, which is a crime of stealing less than $1,000, and then grand larceny, which is a crime stealing over $1,000. We can obviously see the damages to the victims, but can you define environmental crimes by their victims? You probably don't even know the number of environmental crimes that occur in the first place. So in my own research, looking at the years, uh, between 2000 and 2017, there was 24,867 environmental violations and crimes from corporations, according to FBI records. We don't know about these 24,000 or so crimes because they're typically out of our sight. We won't see these crimes in a city where there is little nature. However, on occasion, there is a violation that people see such as the ignorant political attention to the issues in Flint, Michigan, and Love Canal, New York. This is a major problem, if not the biggest problem, when it comes to defining these crimes. If we are unable to observe victims, it is harder to define the severity of a crime. And unfortunately, observing victims is more complicated than street crime for environmental crimes. Most people affected by these green crimes don't even know they're victimized. For instance, water could taste very similar to what it is now from your faucet, but there may be a poisonous chemical. Local food may be harboring pesticides or chemicals from bad fertilizer, and we won't know because the food looks the same from the outside. On the flip side, people who do work with the environment may. For example, farmers will notice a lack of fertile soil if a fertilizer company fails to meet standards. You will see more protections against crimes towards people who work with nature than those who do not. Most people aren't looking out for environmental crimes that affect their everyday life, especially when the effects are gradual, not immediate. There is just so much to focus on in front of you already. Look at Chicago where inner city citizens are concerned about living through the weekend. While environmental crimes can be the most damaging crimes over time and for society as a whole, immediate safety is more important for an individual. And there is good reason for that. The goal of an individual is to survive and thrive. People worry about someone robbing their house because it incites quicker and noticeable changes in their life. And this gets back to my previous point that common sense is needed to understand the impacts of environmental crimes. Street crime is basic at best. It's easily understood by the public and can be handled with less complex policy. 
Street crime can be dealt with easily in the grand scheme of things, but the damage to our ecology and other ecologies is something that, when it does occur, is very complex and convoluted to understand what really is going on. Dr. Melissa Gerald is a well-established scholar in green victimization. You should look up her work. She has done amazing papers. However, here comes the politicians, yet again, trying to put their own agenda into the mix. When politicians discuss victimization, they paint the most absurd and vile picture. The doomsday argument. Yet again, this creeps into the discussion for today. Many politicians and legacy news outlets love this doomsday argument. But again, predictive hypothetical studies are ambiguous, and this ambiguity is not a strong line of logic to present in an argument. But the people in power want your attention. They want to convey that they are the ones who can save us from a catastrophic event. Take, for instance, this article on June 6, 2022 by CNNBC, which discussed the UN Climate Change Conference, for which we know is a political farce. But they titled the article, There is Hope, Prince William in Rallying Cry for the Environment. Yes, there is hope. Pleasant hope from this downward spiral of the virus called humanity, which Prince William can help us out of. In the article, the prince apparently spoke of a certain naive optimism from last year's conference, and he, Prince William, is going to save the planet by speaking a word of hope and encouragement to all of us. Just listen to a clip of Prince William talking about the issues at the Climate Change Conference. Uh, and seeing you all is a very real reminder of the formidable group of individuals, organizations, and leaders that have become part of the Earthshot Prize family. To Earthshot Prize finalists and winners, thank you for believing that we can face the vast challenges in front of us today and for doing your utmost to overcome them. I'm sure I speak on behalf of everyone here in saying that we will not just cheer you on, but we will actively support you to succeed. We are still at the start of our journey together, and if we are to achieve our goal to repair our planet in what is now less than a decade, it is our shared responsibility. This is what I can't stand about the COP meetings. They always want to make standards one year, and meet the next year, and then call themselves naive from last year. Don't take my word for it. Before the UN's 27th Climate Change Conference, the departing climate change chief said that we can do more. We must. I don't think anything good has come from these meetings, and I don't see any evidence. But this is very common within media. I here have a compilation of legacy news outlets from MSNBC to CNN, only using this doomsday argument to provide fear and to message that our democratic politicians will guide us to an environmentally friendly utopia. So what are the, you know, I, as you know, I used to work for the vice president and she used to always say, future wars will be fought over water. Uh, and, and I think we are seeing the ramifications of the climate crisis in every space and place in our everyday lives. And NASA is an important part of combating the climate crisis. So what are some of these data points that the satellite will be able to emit down to, to NASA? What are you guys looking for? Human-induced climate change has amplified the pace of rising sea levels, which magnifies the pace of erosion. It all happens faster when supercharged storms repetitively gnaw at the beaches. Krista Goodrich is the property manager for several homes in Daytona Beach. She watched her coast disintegrate in just 44 days. 
Now to a dire warning about climate change. According to a new report, experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. It also says if unprecedented changes are not made and made soon, there will be irreversible damage to the planet. The report focuses on what could happen if global temperatures rise by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. It would likely mean more erratic weather, dangerous heat waves, rising sea levels, and dying coral reefs. CNN meteorologist Ivan Cabrera is in the International Weather Center following this story. And Ivan, what more can you tell us about this very dire warning? Yeah, so 2030, I mean, we're talking about 12 years at this point here, uh, getting very close. And of course, all the while, I mean, we've already seen that climate change uh, take its toll on the planet. So yes, another climate uh, report and more bad news. This one, uh, of course, from the Intergovernmental Panel on uh, Climate Change. And I want to drill down there. The climate crisis, John Muir Memorial Chair of Geography and founding director of the Water Resources Group, Glenn McDonald. Glenn, scientists say that climate change is making these heat waves more frequent, causing things like droughts and wildfires. Just how concerned should Americans be about the climate crisis right now? I think they should be very concerned. Pick up the paper, turn on your television. Lake Mead, Lake Powell, 28% capacity. The water that 40 million people depend on, threatened. And then of course the wildfires. Over 5 million acres in the Western United States has burned already. We might be heading towards another 10 million uh, acre record year. That, that was hard to listen to. There are so many other ways to show environmental issues than the doomsday approach. But the media is married to this approach and had kids. This anger and end-of-days chanting is depressing, and this hurts scholars when we try to show our research without a political spin. My research is hurt if there are political biases within my readers. I do not want my research on an environmental crime to be fodder for this doomsday argument. It will not properly show who is currently victimized and why there are opportunities for environmental harm in the first place. For instance, we know about gas vehicles obviously pollute the air and harm people, but there is an economic business such as oil and automobile industries pushing this market. A doomsday argument is not going to look at why that market exists. The argument will suggest a complete overhaul of transportation vehicles to prevent future high levels of pollution. But the argument cannot answer why a gas vehicle market was established in the first place, let alone are gas vehicles the largest polluters within our economy? The doomsday argument is basically a straw man that is stringed along to push for eco-justice without historical understanding of the development of our economic relationships with nature. So yes, environmental issues do impact people, but academics and politicians need to provide common sense when defining who is being victimized by environmental crimes, and without a political agenda. The harm needs to be understood clearly to define these crimes for the severity they cause. But unfortunately, the politics do not end there with the victims. When you look at the consequences of environmental crimes, 
the punishment is very small relative to the harm and pocket size of the offenders. It is here where politics will play the most. Politics add more difficulty in handling these offenders and defining crimes by their severity. Our government has established fines against companies for these criminal behaviors, but the balance between the economy and punishment is difficult. Hence, the average fine from the data set I've used was around $3.8 million. This may seem large to you, but for corporations that make over billions and billions of dollars, this is chump change. In addition, corporations have their own politics to play and mitigate the important harms from their actions. Companies love to maintain good public opinion. We all know a company advertises for Pride Month, Black History Month, uh, Spanish Heritage Month, and so on. So, when a company is publicly ousted as an environmental offender, they set up massive campaigns to regain customers and profits. For example, BP Oil literally hosted the Summer Olympics of 2012 after they recklessly handled their business deals and operations with TransOcean, spilling thousands of gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. And this is what really confused me the most about this. There was such a political uproar from the United States and other people in other countries as well. But did the Olympics really care? They had a deal with BP, and BP took that to improve their image in the public eye. So you have a weak punishment of environmental law and corporate publicity trying to skew the definition of environmental crimes and the impacts they cause. And if you think companies learn from these environmental violations, think again. There are constant offenders. Look up the term upset events or corporate upset events. But why are there so many environmental violations and repeated violations? Well, one of the hard pills to swallow for any environmentalist is that we operate within the systems of nature. It is impossible to produce and manufacture without taking natural resources or land from the environment. Our economy is part of the systems of nature. This is why green crimes have complex policies within legislation. When the government does address the interests of the public for a better environment, they still have to ensure a mass production system for our economy or we crash. It is not practical for certain items to be out of stock because they are under investigation or prosecution. Take baby formula, for example. There needs to be certain foods and resources ready when we need it. We need water to clean our houses, ourselves, and hydrate us and our pets. For people who live in a more remote area, they need to constantly obtain fuel for heat and energy. This is why Capitol Hill battles so much on environmental legislation and crime. No thanks for AOC ruining the discussion. It is also the reason why politicians do not run on a campaign to crack down on environmental crime, but increase environmental restoration or protection. They don't want to harm supply and demand in order for people to live their individual lives. And here is the hard part or the hard pill for conservatives in terms of handling environmental issues. They need to answer some questions. How do we maintain environmental balance and health without jeopardizing our means of living? Can we? I think there is a small possibility, but we need to think of the steps to get there. Now, I have voiced my stance on environmental intervention, and it's a political turnoff for me when a politician does want to inject federal hand of the government on everything. So I'm not a big fan of government intervention except for cascading issues like the environment. However, government should not dictate your individual life. For me, 
illegal business activity has the highest potential to intrude into your personal space. I prefer government action to restrict anyone's control or influence over another person's life, including the government itself. That is why I love the Constitution. But for environmental issues, I do see a need where conservative and liberal politicians need to limit ties to corporations and become tough on crime as they do on street crime. Since there is a vested interest within the economy for politicians and to maintain the legitimacy of their elected position, they placate the growing public concern about the environment. So they propose these environmental regulations and uh, codes as a political tool for votes and attract certain support and donations. President Biden ran on environmental justice, but I have yet to see a hard prosecution of any environmental crime. Seriously, if you're going to run on this green stance and don't do anything about it, all you're doing is wanting our votes, and then people regret voting for you. You lose power within your own party. I don't understand why the Republicans and Democrats give us these false promises, especially for issues that some of us deeply care about. The relationship between politicians and businesses, I think, ruined our government. I think it ruined our ability to adapt and change in order to effectively live within the environmental systems, maintain our production and manufacturing, and live a healthier, better life. These environmental crimes that we discuss, are they really something to protect us and the environment? Or is it something that the politicians had to address because they wanted to maintain legitimacy, or they really cared about what we were saying? Defining environmental crimes is going to be difficult. We talked about victimization, the issues with balancing the economy and environmental health, and the political doomsday argument that is used everywhere in legacy media. And that's it for this episode, and I hope to talk to you again. You just listened to The Green Conversation with Leo. If you would like to contribute to the podcast, please visit leojenko.org and sign up to be a member of the community. As a member, you can get content all year long compared to public listeners. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Search for The Green Conversation. Music was produced by Michael David Mobley. Sound and script were produced in-house. Research to make this episode is cited in the episode description. If you would like to make a one-time donation, please contact me for further details. Contact information is on the website. Look for the next episode in two weeks. See you then.